theyeshiva.net. Welcome back, everybody, to our new semester. As you can see, everything is new. <laughs> the format. I'm going to share with you today a uh, what seems like a very strange story that's recorded in Medrash Rabbah, Parshas Noyach, in this week's Parsha, in connection with one of the Psukim in Noyach. That is a very interesting term that's used in Parshas Noyach, in the story, of course, of the flood, which dominates the Parsha. It says, Vayisker, Alekimis Noyach, Hashem remembered Noyach, Veskol Hachaya, Veskol Habehema, Shirite Bateva. And he also remembered all the beasts and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And that's when he relaxed the situation and he caused the waters to calm down or to decease, to desist and to recede. And as the Torah continues, the rain ceased, the wellsprings returned back to their places, to their original places, and the floods began to recede. So, Nayach is in the Teva with his wife, with his three sons, with their wives, their, his daughters-in-law. All the animals are with him in the Teva. But when the Torah says that Hashem remembered, Hashem remembered Nayach, but he also remembered Eskol HaChayev Eskol In other words, the reason the marble stopped was not just because of Nayach. It wasn't just Nayach he remembered, he also remembered all of the animals. That's what it clearly says. They too were a major factor in the decision to stop the Mabel and finally build a new world and let them come out and resettle civilization and, and begin civilization again and so forth. On this, the Medrash Rabbim, Parshish Noyach, brings a Pasuk, another Pasuk. This Pasuk we say, Shabbos afternoon after Mincha. The end of Mincha is known as Tzitkoscha Tzedek. We say Tzitkoscha Kahari Rekel Mishpatecha Tohoim Rabba Adam Ubehema Toshia Hashem. Which means a human being, an Adam, a behemoth, and an animal, a beast, a behemoth, to Shia Hashem, you Hashem help. So it doesn't only mention Adam, it's Adam Ubehema, a man with an, an, an animal. And the Medrash connects it here too. Hashem remembered not only Nayakh, but also the animals. Okay. But now the Medrash brings a story. And the story is a very, very interesting story. And uh, the Medrash doesn't clearly explain why it's bringing the story, but you have to understand it from context. The story is about one of the greatest uh, warrior, warriors and military geniuses and leaders of ancient times known today as Alexander the Great. In our literature, he's often called, referred to as Alexander Moikdain. Moikdain is the Hebrew name for Macedonia, which was the city in Greece where he came from, where he grew up, and where he rose to power, succeeding his father. I think his father's name was Philip. And Alexander, therefore, is called Alexander Mikdon. Macedonia. Actually, today in Macedonia, Macedonia is undergoing major construction today. Um, they want to restore it to a lot of its former 
uh, glory. They're building monuments and museums. Macedonia. Yeah. Macedonia. Macedonia, yeah. Macedonia. Yeah. I'm sure Mrs. Sharfstein was there in one of her visits, no? You lived in Macedonia? Sure, I'm They say there was once a Jewish immigrant who when they asked him to fill out the citizen papers when he arrived to the U.S., to Ellis Island, so he, he wasn't exactly well-versed in numbers. So instead of writing 1941, he wrote 1491. So the guy on the other side of the desk was also an old Jew, also probably wasn't so well-versed. So he turns to him, he says, Ah, it's a pity, you should have waited a year, you could have come with Columbus. <laughs> In any case, so Macedonia right now, as I talk, is undergoing major construction, I think to be completed in 2014. <laughs> and what they want is that the people there, or the citizens, the natives, should feel the great glory that once adored that city being the, the hometown and the birthplace, I believe, of Alexander the Great. So the Medrash tells a story about this Alexander. Now Alexander, you know, conquered the civilized world during his lifetime, and he really owned it, which was a major feat. At the age of 29, a man should achieve so much, literally dominating the world from India in the east, all the way to the west, whatever was populated by the human race at the time known to him, including, of course, the Middle East, including Eretz Yisrael. And the Gemara tells the story of how he uh, went up to Yerushalayim, he wanted to erect a statue of one of the pagan Greek gods in the Beis Hamikdash, and Shimon HaTzadik, who was the Kohen Gadol, we spoke about him a few weeks ago, came out to greet him, in his big day kohuna, in his eight vestments, and when, Shimon, when Alexander saw Shimon HaTzadik, he got off his own horse, and he bowed down to him. And when his servants were astonished that the most important military leader of the time would bow down to a local priest, Alexander said that when he goes to war, he always knew that sometimes he saw an image of a particular person, and when he saw that image he would be victorious. And now he finally sees whose image it was. It was Shimon HaTzadik's image. And Shimon HaTzadik then struck a deal with him. Instead of building a uh, statue in the Beis HaMikdash, they would name, for the next year, all the Koyanim would have sons, they would name them Alexander. And that's when Alexander was converted from a Greek name into a uh, Jewish name. Till today, Alexander. Or in, uh, for girls, Alexandra. And this happened through Shimon HaTzadik. And he made some other deals with him, another three deals with him. And Alexander agreed and he befriended Shimon HaTzadik and he became somewhat a friend of the Jewish people. And he allowed them to do their thing in the Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. Another interesting thing about Alexander is that during his youth he was tutored by the great Greek philosopher Aristotle. Until the age of 16... Alexander the Great has his teacher, Aristotle, who is considered one of the greatest philosophers in the ancient world and whose influence was enormous. Now, Alexander's father was assassinated when Alexander was 20 years old and he succeeded his father to the throne. He inherited a strong kingdom and an experienced army. But what he did afterwards is, as I said, he almost conquered the world and he was undefeated in battle. He's considered one of history's most successful military commanders. And to put it in perspective, you have to understand that he is often ranked among the world's most influential people of all time. And in the Gemara and the Medrash, his name is frequently mentioned. Alexander Moigdon. Various t- stories, various tales, uh, various sayings of his. There's a fascinating story about him in Mesech Tomid and in other places in Gemara and Medrash. Now, I share this with you as historical context, a historical backdrop to appreciate the story that the Medrash Rabbah presents in this week's Parsha, Parshas Noyach. It's Medrash Rabbah, Parshas Noyach, Parsha Lamed Gimel, section 33, verse 1, Piska Aleph. 
And let me tell you the story in the Medrash. It's written in Aramaic. It's a hard, it's a hard Aramaic. It's hard to understand the story. But this is the story that our sages tell us in Noach about Alexander. Alexander, who is the great conqueror, passes what Chazal call Hori Choshech. He passes mountains of darkness to an empire called Katsya. Like the word Kates, which means the end. This is an empire, so to speak, at the end of the world. At the end of the pla- a planet Earth. It's very remote. He has to pass mountains of darkness in order to get to this empire called Malchus Katsya. To quote it in the, little, in, the, in the original Aramaic, I'm going to quote it to you. I have here the Medrash. Simply to hear the words, Alexander Moigdin Oza Legabe Malka Katsia La Choire Hori Choishach. Alexander of Macedonia goes to the king of the empire of Katsia behind the mountains of darkness. This is the story in the Medrash. This empire is very different than the empire of Alexander. And uh, it, it's, it's run differently, its ethics is differently, as we will see, its behavior is differently, and Alexander goes to visit this place. When Alexander arrives, he sends a message that he would like to see the king. Now, Alexander wants to see you, you go see him. So the king of Katsya comes out to Alexander loaded with an enormous amount of gold. Alexander tells him, you think I need your money? I need your money. So the king of Katsi says, well, what do you need? You came here to eat? You don't have food in your own land that you have to come here to eat? Alexander the Great says, I came to learn how you judge in this country. I want to know how the court system works in your country. That's what I came here for. Fine. So Alexander is now wondering, what is the seder, what is the system of morality, of values, of ethics, of judgments in this country? Indeed, indeed, says the Medrash, he discovers what he was looking for. Two people approach the king, they come for a din, they come for a court case. What's the problem? Problem is, says the Medrash, you have a plaintiff and you have a defendant. So here's the problem. One man is complaining about his friend. What does he say? This man sold me a churva. This friend of his that he's bringing to court, the defendant, he sold me a churva. He sold me basically a churva is a desolate piece of land with a destroyed structure. A desolate structure. He sold it to this man. The the buyer, the purchaser, who bought the territory, started to look through it, and he found inside a grand oitzer, a grand treasure, which was very, very expensive. So he comes back to the seller and he says, this is yours, this is not mine. So he says, what do you mean it's mine? It's not mine. He says, yeah, I never bought from you a treasure. I bought from you a churva. You know, if I would have known this is it, it would have been a whole different sale. I bought a churva. You never sold me the treasure, you sold me the churva. So the man told him, no, it belongs to you. Because I sold you the churva with everything that's in it. He said, no, it's not right for me to take it. And the other man, the seller, said, it's not right for me to take it. I gave it away, I sold it to you. It was in it. So what do you do? They're fighting about who should give up the money to whom. I mean, who should, uh, he wants the other person should have the money, he wants the other person should have. So they come to the king. So the king listens to it. He says to the seller, do you have a son? He says, yeah. And he's telling the buyer, do you have a daughter? He says, yeah. You think they could be a good match for a shidduch? Yeah, not a bad idea. She says, so why don't we do this? Let's try to marry them off. And you'll give them the treasure. That way, 
it's yours and it's yours. It goes to both of you through your children. Does anybody have a with the side? <laughs> okay, they leave happily. They got a good verdict. First of all, they got a shidduch for their kids. They were probably looking for a shidduch for a while. Besides that, they had a good verdict for their question. <coughs> Alexander the Great, remember the most powerful person in the world, the Medrash says, is sitting there, and he looks uh, out of it. He looks astonished, astounded. There's this strange look at his face. So the king of Kaitsi turns to him and says, Your Majesty... You seem so astounded. Did I not give an adequate ruling? Do you feel that it was immoral what I did? Why are you so astounded? He says, no, no, I don't think it was immoral. But I'm astounded by this whole experience that happened. He says, why? How would have you ruled? If these two people would have come to me, how would have you ruled? He says, how would have we ruled? We would have killed them both. And taking their treasure. That's what we would have done. Generally, there's a rule by us that when you find a treasure somewhere under the earth that you didn't expect, it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the king. The very notion that they're debating about who the treasure goes to, that's already an immoral act. We would have killed them both, we would have seized their treasure, and when you die because of uh, treason against the king, then we would take all their other properties and all their other assets and it would become the king's. So the king of Kaitsa turns to him and says, Tell me, does the sun shine by you? Does the sun come up in your territory? So he said, Yeah. Does the sun set? Yeah. Does it rain? Yeah. Do the fields and orchards produce vegetation and fruit? He says, Yeah. So the king of Kaitsa says, well, I could swear to you, he says, I could swear to you that it's not because of the people who live there. It must be because of the animals who live. Do you have animals living by you? Behemoth dakais, which means uh, domesticated beasts that don't devour other animals. He says, yeah, we have goats, we have sheep, we have cows, we have bulls. He says, if so, I could swear that the rain and the sunshine... And the life that exists in your territory is not b'schus the people, it's only b'schus the behemoths. It's only in the merit of animals. And the Medrash continues, this is the meaning of the Pasuk. Adam, u behema, Hashem. Adam b'schus behema. That sometimes God saves people only in the merit of animals. In other words, the people on their own don't have the merit to be saved. It's only because of the innocent animals that he merits, that he saves the people. So, Adam u Hashem. The Adam is saved b'schus the behema. Adam u Only when there's a behema, then the Adam is saved. That's the meaning of the Pasuk. And this is a proof or a support for what the king of Kites had told Alexander the great Alexander of Macedonia, that I'm sure that all of this happens because of the animals. So I see the people in the class that really like animals are very excited by this idea, right? That's the point. Now, what's interesting is that the Medrash brings it on the Pasuk here, that Hashem remembered Noyach and all the animals. And it seems, it seems, that part of the interpretation is that the animals weren't only a secondary factor, but they, have made a, they, have, they may have played a major role in this uh, episode, that part of the issue of remember, part of the reason of remembering Noyach is because there were also many animals in the Teva. Obviously, here it would be a little different because Noyach himself, the Torah says, was Ish Tzadik 
Tamim Haya Bideris of different interpretations, what level of a tzaddik he was, whatever that's not for now. But the point is that the Medrash emphasizes that the schus of the behemoth, the merit of the behemoth and the chayis and the teva reign supreme. Which still here is the story recorded in the Medrash, as I said in Parshish Noyach and this possible. What we have to try to understand is what is the meaning of this story. As we know, all these stories recorded, especially in Medrash, are not just uh, uh, historical uh, descriptions, but usually they represent ideas. We don't have every story of Alexander the Great recorded in Medrash. It's particular stories that the Medrash records because it's trying to impress a certain notion, a certain idea, a certain perspective. In Medrash, unlike Halacha, sometimes stories also have to be lechatchila understood as metaphors, as allegories. In other words, many of the stories are not necessarily stories that occurred in a particular time and space, but rather it's stories that represent certain ideas through metaphor. We have uh, the famous stories of Rabbi Bar Barchana, fictionals that many believe are fictional, but they are, are metaphoric. Concerning this story, it may be rooted in actual history of a particular journey that he took. Probably that's the case. But regardless, if it's only written as metaphor, or it's written as fact, the reason it's written is to teach an idea, to teach a lesson, to explain something, to give an insight, because Torah B'chlal is not a history book only. The word Torah we know means instructions, which means lessons. So each, it's not just to tell you what happened in the past, but to guide us for the future and for the present. And this is a klal about all stories that are recorded in, in the literature of Chazal, any type of story, especially when it's a story of not even about the Jewish people. It's stories about two Gentile kings. So how does it come into the Medrash? It comes in, certainly it's not a history book about non-Jews. It comes in because it gives a whole perspective. And the truth is, if we think about the story, the story is not just a story about two kings, and it's not just an interesting episode about an encounter between two monarchs and the different ways they rule the people and the types of disputes that existed in this remote location. But really it's a story that, um, as you would say, embodies two Weltanschauungs, two uh, different notions and perspectives and vantage points of life that exist till today. The best way, I think, to understand the story is by introducing what the Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya, in his Tanya in the ninth chapter. In the ninth chapter of Tanya, the Alter Rebbe introduces the fact that there are two kings who are battling over one city. And we know whenever there are two kings who are trying to take hold of one city, that's what war means. <laughs> if you are comfortable in your city and I'm comfortable in my city, there's peace. War begins when you and I both want the same territory and we both want to dominate it. This is, of course, the result of this is war. Comes down to Rebbe and Tanya, right in the, close to the beginning of Periktes, and his terminology that he uses is very uh, beautiful and eloquent. And he says, Haguf Nikri Irktana. The body is called in Gemara, Mesechtinadarim, based on Kaihelas. It's called a small little city. A small city. Just as you have two monarchs, two kings, battling over one city, each one seeking to dominate it and rule over it. In other words, it craves that all of the citizens of that city should subjugate themselves to his will, and they should be obedient and follow his rulings and directives in everything that he decrees. The same Dalter Rebbe says... In the little city called the body, there are two kings. Not just two people, not just two spirits, not just two inclinations, but really two kings, two great leaders and personalities. 
that battle with each other on the body and on the, all of its limbs and all of its organs, each one wanting to fully dominate this city called the body. <coughs> so we're not dealing here with a tale of two cities, uh, London and Paris. We're dealing with a tale of one city, but in this one, called the human body, but in this one city, there's lots of action because two kings are continuously trying to control and dominate. So here we immediately have an association between two kings trying to rule the body, and each king has a different agenda. Each king has a different personality. Each king has a different way of seeing life, and therefore appreciating and seeing what it wants the body and all of its limbs and organs to do. Who are these two kings in Tanya? So the Rebbe says, Shtei The two souls, they are, one is called divine, and one is called chiyunis, which means uh, biological. There is a biological consciousness soul, and there is a divine soul. If you now go back to the story of Alexander with the king of Kaitsi and you listen to the interaction between them, you see very closely, you see a very close association with the fight and the war that the Rebbe describes between two kings over one city, over one body. Let's first discuss what's uh, probably less counterintuitive. I'm not going to say to the people sitting here, but uh, probably to at least many people, what's less counter, what's more intuitive, namely the animal, the biological consciousness. The biological consciousness is basically that soul that gives life to the body, which turns us into biological creatures. It's called nefesh achiyunis, which means the soul that gives chayis, the soul that gives physical life. It's the essence of physical life. Every machine has a battery to make it work, and the body also has a battery, an engine, and that engine is called the nefesh achiyunis, the biological soul. At the center point of this biological soul, is the quest for self-preservation and self-gratification. It wants to live, it wants to endure, it wants to exist, and it also wants to feel good, it wants to be content. And therefore, the most, uh, the key driving factor behind this soul is the ego, which the ego is the sense of self, that sense that I have, that I exist, and I want to exist, and I want that my existence should be as comfortable and as gratifying and as entertaining as possible. So that's the quest of this biological soul. At its core, it wants to live, it wants to survive. In other words, it's focused on itself. So if you strip the layers and you ask it, who are you? It says, I am I and I'm here for me. That is its quest at its core. Again, self-preservation and self-gratification. This is called the nefesh achiyunas. It's one type of soul. It's one type of consciousness. And therefore it will engage in all types of thoughts and words and deeds which will contribute to this goal, to this objective, which is self-preservation and self-gratification. It will create alliances with others as long as it can see in the others an assistance, a tool to assist it in living and preserving. 
So often you need other people to be able to help you out. So it's quid per quo. In other words, I make an alliance with you or a partnership with you or a friendship with you, which is beneficial for me. Because as a result of this alliance or this friendship or this camaraderie, I can fulfill my goals and my objectives and my functions. That's one type of soul a person has, and that's one king. The problem is, or the child, or the interesting thing is, that the body also has a second king. And the second king also wants to dominate it. And the second king is not the biological soul, it's a godly soul. What type of soul is this soul? This soul, the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya at length, and in many Svarim, especially of Hasidus, it's a chelik elikambi mal, which means it's a part of God, it's a spark of the divine. Being a spark of the divine, it really sees life from God's perspective, because it's actually a piece of God, so to speak. It's a dimension of God which was planted into the human body, or maybe transplanted into the human body. And therefore, it sees things very differently than the biological soul. The first thing is, in human relationships, it doesn't see the other as a stranger who's competing with me, as the ego sees it, but it rather sees itself and the other deeply connected and interconnected. Why? Because both come from God. And since the divine soul is a piece of God, so therefore it sees itself as part of a larger mechanism or actually part of a larger organism and deeply interconnected with other people. So the divine soul doesn't only look for the other's benefit as a way, as a narcissistic method to be able to get back, but rather it really is concerned with the other because the other is part of the I. In other words, the very I of the divine soul is not based on ego. It's rather based on the divine I. And the divine I encompasses all of creation. And encompasses all of existence. So here there's a sense of oneness with others. And a sense of oneness with existence. The divine soul also doesn't seek only self-preservation and self-gratification, rather as a peace or as a spark of God, so it looks to be one with Hashem, it looks to be one with God. That's what it wants, that's what it craves, that's what it yearns. It doesn't only want to live and it doesn't only want to preserve, it wants meaning, it needs purpose, it wants truth actually. It's looking for MS. Because it's a spark of God, so it wants to realign itself with its own essence, with its own source. If we would have only one and not the other, so there would be peace in the body. Since there are two kings, and they both want control over the same body, so the Alter Rebbe says there's a constant battle going on in everybody's life. And the battle is who will assert itself. In other words, who will be, uh, gain victory and be triumphant in the human body? Will the body and all of its limbs and organs be dominated completely by the biological consciousness or by the godly soul? But the godly soul doesn't want to dominate. It wants to connect to me with the But it wants the body. It wants the body to, to be an extension of it. Now, come back to the two kings in Madrash. So here you have the story. A person comes to the king and says, I sold a chorva. The other person said, I bought a chorva. I found a treasure. What, what, would, be, what would be my natural reaction? You sell me a piece of land. Right? You sell me a car. In the car, I suddenly find... yeah. 20 million dollars so what's the natural instinct somebody sells me a churva I dig and suddenly I find a treasure 
the natural instinct is it goes to me. I wouldn't even tell anybody. Would you even tell anybody? Suddenly in this country, in this uh, country as a metaphor for consciousness, in this location, the person has a very different attitude. He says, you sold me the churva. A churva you sold me, you didn't sell me a treasure. So there was a misunderstanding here. And therefore, take it back. And that's his initial reaction. And when the other person refuses, even if you would be so righteous as to go back to the seller and say, this is you, yours, if the seller tells you, keep it, so fine. So now you even have, uh, you can even tell yourself you have tzaddik. No, they go to a court case. In other words, for the recipient, for the buyer, it's completely objectionable for him to take it. He can't even conceive, even though the guy said it's yours. So he has his askami, he has his endorsement. It's inconceivable for him to take it. This is a very mythical reality, completely mythical. I understand why Alexander the Great was sitting there via glump looking at this. It wasn't just the verdict that astonished him, it was probably the very question that astonished him. Not only that, the Mepharshim say that the reason he killed them, he said we would have killed them both, is because a treasure you have to bring to the king. You could say even more than that, you could say the reason he would have killed them both is because obviously they came to mock the king, which two normal people come for such a court case. Tzvei Shagayim. Kill them both. You don't come into the palace to mock the king with your Meshagas. Before the, the good days of democracy. <laughs> he didn't come to mock the king. So he would kill them both. Because they have to be two insane people. It's important to understand because this is how the animal soul views the godly soul. It is insane. So when uh, the Alter Rebbe says, for example, at the end of Perik Aleph, that uh, there is the distinction made in Hasidus between Hasidi Umas Ha'olam and Umas Ha'olam. Hasidi Umas Ha'olam, the Altar writes in Siddur and Pesach Shar Chagamatzas, their, their Nefesh Abahamas comes from Klipas Noiga, like a Jewish Nefesh Abahamas, which means even the animal soul comes from a shell which is translucent, it has light. Noiga means it has light. But others who are not Hasidi Yomasem, they're not the pious ones, he says their souls come from Shalaklipas Atmeir Shaim Ben Toiv Klal, from cells that don't have Toiv. What Dalt Rebbe means by Toiv in Tanya is not what we call good and evil. Good and evil in Tanya is not the good and evil that we refer to. Good, you're a good person, or evil, you're an evil person, as a monster, or a thief, or a or uh, an abuser, that's not evil in Tanya. Good and evil in Tanya means one with God, or self-conscious rather than God-conscious. That's why evil in Tanya is really not the right word. Evil in Tanya actually doesn't mean evil, it's egocentricity versus God-centricity. So when you say a soul, it doesn't mean the soul can't do good things. It just means that it sees altruism, true altruism as some a form of insanity because imagine how you would look when you would see this court case that's how the animal soul looks at the divine soul but this is how the divine soul really lives it okay Yeah, but it's American. Yeah. When you buy a house, you don't have to be old. You buy stuff. Right. It's called Mispecha Sadeh, bad mazel. You should have dug. You should have dug. American law is based on Western, uh, Western civilization, including, including Greek culture. And uh, even Torah law, perhaps, is the way you're saying. The question here is not law. He, this is what astonished him, that there was a form, there was a types of people, that their consciousness was completely different. They basically treated each other like two limbs of one body. 
if you, if, you would treat, if you would see another person as another limb of the same body, Yerushalmi famously says that when you, your left hand does something that you don't like, so most normal people don't take a hammer and start beating the left arm. Why? Because when you beat your left arm, you're also beating your right arm and your brain and your whole body. You can't separate between the two. <laughs> you can't say, oh, my foot really did something terrible, I'm going to cut it off. When you cut off the foot, or you harm the foot, you're not damaging the foot. You're damaging the foot, you're damaging yourself. But we don't look at another person that way. Suddenly here, Alexander the Great sees two people come, and that's how they're treating each other. The way Alexander the Great understood law was, naturally people would devour each other. And what's the function of law? The function of law is to keep them in check, to keep them in balance. Yeah. So somehow to limit this natural desire of people to dominate. In this man, by the king of Kaitsi, suddenly here it's a whole different perspective. The people themselves would become completely selfless. <laughs> and the law was almost there to halt them in the Raman. There should be shoiv, shuv, and not only rotsai. There should be a, a structure and not just giving everything away. So Alexander the Great was astonished. He never saw such a reality. He never saw such a perception. He says, you're crazy. Now the man responds to him and says, there's sun by you, there's rain by you, there's food by you, there's animals by you. He says, yeah. He says, it's not peschus the people. So here is the paradox. What Alexander the Great sees as insane, the other king sees as perfectly sane. What Alexander the Great sees as normal and balanced, the other king sees as perfectly insane. And this teaches us about the drama of the marriage between the two souls. The animal soul and the godly soul. The biological soul and the godly soul. They're not just two different creatures. You say by a shidduch, you know, he's a Sfardi, she's an Ashkenazi, he comes from here, she comes from there, they come from different families, they have different perspectives. That's every shidduch. Here it's not just that. It's complete opposites. What you see normal, I see completely as crazy and abnormal. And what I see as normal, you see completely as abnormal. And these two souls now have to learn to somehow work it out through a lifetime. But that's how profound the complex is. What the Nefesh Bahamas sees as completely normal, the Nefesh Kis sees as insane, ridiculous, absurd to live this way. Very, very narrow. Very, very... Uh, 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 what, what Dr. Rebbe calls klippa. What does klippa mean? Klippa means a shell, which means you're living with so many cover-ups. How could you live with in such a narrow tunnel with so many uh, realities clouding your vision, blinding you? The nefesh alikis is open and it sees reality for what it is and it's very broad and it feels very free because it's in touch with the inner organic energy of all of existence and of the source of existence. And it looks at the animal soul and it says, <laughs> you know, the emperor has no clothes and yet you feel fully functional, and the animal soul looks at the goddess and says, you can't survive that way. This is a world that's a jungle, survival of the fittest. If you, <laughs> if you start giving away treasures, you can't live in this world this way. You can't live like this. You have to be a mensch. Hillel says, If I'm not for myself, who's going to be for me? You? You'll eat me up. Then he adds, But if I'm only for myself, then what am I? So you have here these two statements. So the two kings meet. And it's interesting that one king is called Kaitsa, which represents Kates, which means the end of days. Because in many ways, his perspective represents a utopia. The end of days. When people will be able to look at each other this way. In our world, as I don't have to tell you, especially in Brooklyn, in New York... <laughs> If you're not on protection mode, you feel you could be crushed. 
Right? So these are the two souls that exist in every person. It's important to understand this because it's important to understand both forces are very real in every person. Both forces. And if a person doesn't appreciate and understand both realities in them, they can't understand themselves. And therefore they can't ever have a chance of creating some type of peace and harmony in their existence. You could say in many ways that Judaism in its totality is a meditation on how to uh, create shalom bias between these two forces in a person. Between complete idealism and yet living in a world that's before the Cates where often the egocentricity of the human race emerges. And much of the Tanya is coming to tell the person how to be able to uh, relax their defenses and become comfortable with this other king's perspective from Kaitzi. Because naturally, we are very afraid to relax our defenses. And Al-Tarebbe tries to soothe and massage, massage the human person and caress, caress your life in a way that you should be able to uh, open up this way. You should be able to come out of the tunnel. You should be able to remove the blinders. You should be able to remove the layers. You should be able to see life in this way. And this is Avaida. This. You think the the Alexander the Great was more peaceful? Right, so in summation, we have here really two kings representing two different worlds, two different components of the psyche, two layers of consciousness. One is the world that's recognizable to us, it's familiar to us, it's the identity of the self that we're, we're comfortable with, or I should say, it's predictable. The second layer of consciousness is a concealed world, it's beyond Hore Choshech, it's beyond the mountains of darkness, as the Medrash says, it's represented as Kaitsa. It's the utopian world. It's the world that's going to dominate our planet after Mashiach comes. And the confrontation between these two kings, Alexander and the king of Kites, is really a confrontation between these, uh, these two layers of consciousness. And what for Alexander is absolutely insanity. Alexander says, you can't live this way. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> What are you talking about? People who come embarrass the king, either they're crazy or they're uh, they're mocking mocking the king. It doesn't it doesn't doesn't work that way. You're fighting that the other person should get the money. Alexander can't understand this. Either they're crazy or they're just trying to mock the king. On the contrary, when the king of Kaitsa learns how Alexander operates his country, he is astonished no less than Alexander. He's like. Do you have the sun? Do you have the rain? And when he hears that everything is normal, he says, this can't be in the merit of people. They're not normal. A world that's built on constant uh, conflict and war and self-centeredness and selfishness and narcissism. It's a bunch of sharks trying to bite bite off each other and backstab the other person. That's not a real world. Such a world can't endure. He says, ah, if this world was dependent on people, it would have been destroyed. Uh, there has to be one element in the world, the element of, of, of uh, the, 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 the behemoth dacus, the, the cute uh, domesticated animals who don't kill each other. Uh, who, who who live on an instinct of compassion? That's that's uh, that's in whose merit merit the world exists. The king of kites is telling Alexander, "I'm not the Meshugana, You're the Meshugana one. I'm not the crazy one. You're the crazy one." And essentially, what we're learning from this is that we have to be able to appreciate our divine soul. We're often so afraid. We're always running away from our holiness, from our idealism, from our beauty, from our godliness. We sometimes feel that we always have to be on the edge. We always have to be at edge, sharp, brutal, aggressive, 
on top of our game, ready to devour, to kill, to crush, to embarrass, to gossip, to denigrate. Relax. Become comfortable in your real own skin. Become comfortable in your vulnerability. Become comfortable in your, in your sacredness, in your divinity, in your holiness, in your beauty. Don't run away from yourself. The person who denies this aspect of themselves, their innocence, their craving that somebody else should also win, their desire to give, to share, to be open, to be honest, to be transparent. If I run away from that, I'm escaping from myself. I'm being disloyal to my lovely, beautiful soul whose real ambition is to cultivate a very deep relationship with people that is based on goodness, on kindness, on sharing, on honesty. Learn about that part of you, the kates, the kaitsa, beyond the mountains of darkness. Learn to live with it. It'll bring, it'll bring healing to you. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be, you know, on the contrary, it'll bring wholesomeness to you. And, and much of life is, to, as I said, learning how to cultivate the relationship between these two souls. I want to tell you a mice. I want to tell you a story. It's a beautiful, beautiful story because I think it really makes the point. It's a story about a rabbi who was approached by two people, an old father and his son, who came for a, also they came for a mishpat, for a din for a court case. What was the situation? This son was supporting the old man. He was out in the field plowing and planting and harvesting and farming and cultivating and nurturing. And in the cold winter days, it was very difficult for him. The old father was in the home and the son was supporting him. They only had one coat. And the question was, who gets to keep this coat? The son said, listen, you know, my father is an old man, but I am outside. I'm outdoors in nature with the elements. I deserve to get the coat. And the father said, I'm shivering at home. I'm much older than he is. I'm a very old man. If I'm not going to get the coat, I'm going to die from cold. I deserve to get the coat. And so they're fighting who gets the coat and they come to the rabbi. And the rabbi listens to both sides and he reflects on it and he says, you know what? Justice dictates that the boy, the son, gets the coat. After all, he has to respect his father and his father is an old man, but the father is indoors all day. Let him find something to protect himself with. It's the son who's outside in the fields. He is subjected to the brutal cold weather and therefore he deserves to get the coat. And so the son is victorious He's triumphant, he's all happy, he puts on the coat, and they leave the rabbi's chambers. As they're walking home, it's a cold day, and the son sees his father trembling, and suddenly a, a deeper part within him is, is, uh, is triggered. And he's thinking to himself, you know, I won, but did I really win? Am I not a loser if I'm really allowing my father to walk home trembling from cold, subject to frostbite, and he takes off the coat and he puts it on his father. He said, Tata, father, you take the coat. And the father looks at his boy and he sees his boy now trembling from cold. And the next day he sees the boy going outside without the coat and he asks himself, is this really what a father is? Is this really what I want from my life? I got the coat. My boy sacrifices himself every day to take care of us and I'm going to deprive him from the basic protection he needs when he's outside in the cold day and night. And he says, son, you get the coat. And the boy says, father, you get the coat. And now they get into a new fight. Who gets the coat? The father wants the boy to have the coat. The boy wants the father to have the coat. Mamish like in the story of Alexander Moigdin and the king of Kaitsa. So now they go back to the rabbi for a second court case. The father is screaming, I want him to take the coat. The son is screaming, I want my father to take the coat. No, I want my son to take the coat. And they come to the rabbi, they say, you have to say which one gets the coat. The rabbi looks at them and he thinks for a moment and he says, wait here a moment. He goes out of the room and he comes back a few minutes later with a beautiful, big, warm wool coat. And he says, you know, in my closet, I had an old coat that I'm not using. Here's a second coat. Take this coat. I lend this coat to you. You have your coat. You have your coat. And you'll both have a coat. The old father looks at the rabbi and says, thank you so much. Wonderful. But I have one silly question. 
This brilliant idea you could have said the first time when we came here. Fighting who gets the coat, and you said my son gets the coat. Why didn't you come up with this idea? You'd lend us your coat that you're not using, or we'd both have coats. The rabbi looked at the old man, and he looked at his son, and he said, I'll explain to you, I'll explain it to you. You see, the first time around, you both came. You were screaming, it's my coat. You were screaming, it's my coat. Subconsciously, I was screaming, it's my coat. I wouldn't even think of sharing my coat with you. It didn't even cross the mind. I didn't even remember it. The second time around, the father is screaming, you get the coat. I want my son to have the coat. The son is screaming, no, you, I want my father to have the coat. Each one of you was thinking about the other. And suddenly it triggered within me, it evoked within me. It brought up within me the feeling, ah, I want to give you my coat. And I remembered my coat and I'm sharing it with you. And this perhaps is at least one of the major messages of the Medrash. Of course we each have a part within ourselves that is extremely self-centered and extremely narcissistic and we're defensive and we want to protect ourselves and protect our loved ones like a lion and a lioness. That's the Alexander the Great, the symbol of Greek power, of Greek military prowess and brilliance, the great conqueror, the wise military man and so forth. And that's a real part of us. It's a genuine part of us. But we also have another part of us. And the other part of us represents the kates, the kaitsa, and it's sometimes very deep concealed, and that part of us is as real as the first part, and maybe it's much more real. Because it's a chelekelekami mal mamish. And just like God is the source of all of humanity, that part in us is concerned with everybody. And that part of us is never happy if it makes other people miserable. That's a part in me that for me to win, you have to win. And if you lose, ultimately I lose too. And life is really balancing those two parts. But when I operate on that level, I inspire that level of idealism in other people. Of course, I can live a life where I'm always making calculations and everything is about scoring points. And it's always quid per quo. You did this, I did this, I did this for you, you do this for me. And if you don't do it for me, I'm upset at you and I carry grudges. It's one way to live. And for some people, it maybe works, at least on some level. But what the Medrash is telling us and really what the whole Tanya and so many other works of, uh, of Jewish ethics and spirituality are all about is embrace your other part. Learn about that other part because you know why? When you live this way, you inspire that in other people. You, when you believe in your own goodness and you cultivate it and you work with it and you operate on that level of consciousness, that is the response you will get from other, other people. What does the Pasuk say in Mishle? The face I show the water is the face that the water shows back to me. When I'm really idealistic, I will allow you to become idealistic. The rabbi thinks about them because they show him what it means to be kind, to be giving. Will some people manipulate the situation and utilize my goodness to stab me? Perhaps. But you know what? It's ultimately their loss much more than my loss. Now this comes from a very deep confidence, it comes from a very deep place of security, very deep sense of closeness with God, and, and this is what our neshama is. Now, we finally go back to your question, which is a very good question, and that is, <laughs> there's a little problem here. The problem, of course, is that in the Medrash, the king of Kaitsa says that in the land of Alexander the Great, they're existing because of the animals, not because of the people, <laughs> We're talking here about the Nefesh Bahamas, the animal soul, which essentially is like a selfish beast, but ultimately in the story, it's the animals that are protecting mankind because of their innocence. And here we come to one final point, and that is, one of the great ideas of the Tanya is that the animal soul is not really selfish and it's not really evil. It's animalistic, but it doesn't have to be obliterated, it doesn't have to be destroyed, it has to be educated and refined, and in the case of the Tzaddik, it becomes so refined that it becomes a complete partner with the divine soul that the two souls, mamash, become one. 
So not only is the animal soul not inferior to the godly soul, but the animal soul becomes a full partner of the godly soul. And in some discourses, the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, explains that the animal soul has a source that's deeper than the divine soul. In his source, Esav comes from a place that's deeper than Yaakov. And that's why God put these two souls together, because the godly soul needs the animal soul as much as the animal soul needs the godly soul. So even though the animal soul can become undomesticated and can become self-centered and can become brutal and can be selfish and cruel and disgusting and immoral and promiscuous, that's true. But in its core, it's not that. In its core, it's an innocent, cute animal. It wants to be comfortable, it wants to live, and it doesn't know how to be comfortable, so it follows the most basic material instincts of how to gain confidence and comfort. But really, the animal soul needs to be educated, like a child. And when you educate it what good is, and what comfort is, and what happiness is, and what truth is, the animal soul is capable of becoming close to the divine soul, and in some cases, a complete partner of the divine soul, at least at some points in life. So that's another message here, that yes, there is the human being in Alexander the Great's empire who can become very, very corrupt. But there is the basic animal instinct that at its core is not evil at all. On the contrary, it's divine. And the two souls ultimately learn to make peace. And when they learn to make peace, so then the animal soul learns from the divine soul, but the divine soul also gains so much from the animal soul. Because the animal soul has a certain power a certain intensity, a certain ferociousness, a certain simplicity, a certain innocence that even the divine soul doesn't have. And that's ultimately why God put these two souls together. So as the Medrash says, this is the meaning of the Pasuk in Tehillim, Adam u'behema teshia Hashem, that God saves the Adam b'schus behema, that ultimately... Our behemoth, our animal, which we often denigrate and mock, could become a great source of inspiration and a great source of holiness and a great source of spirituality. The Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, writes in the Kudatayra that the source of the animal soul comes from the world of Toyu, which is deeper than the world of Tikkun. It's the world of chaos, which in its source is more godly than the world of healing. Yaakov comes from Tikkun. Esav comes from Toyu. And this is the explanation why God made that people should eat and need food which are inferior to us. We eat vegetation, we eat produce. We, those of us who are not vegetarian, we eat fish, we eat animals. But why? Why would the human being be dependent on these forms of life which are inferior to the human being? What's the point? And the answer is because they contain within themselves sparks of holiness, which although in this world have fallen to the point that we can't recognize them immediately, but they contain within themselves sparks of innocence and sacredness and godliness and holiness that are greater than the human soul. Even than the divine soul, the nefesh kiss comes from toyu beyond tikkun, which is a profound idea in Kabbalah and Hasidus. And when we eat these foods appropriately, we're not only gaining from the food, we're giving something to the food. We're allowing these elements of life to be sublimated back to their source. And when they're sublimated back to their source, they elevate us to a place that we could not reach on our own. So the next time you stick your fork into a piece of meat, into a piece of fish, or into any produce or vegetation, there's a responsibility there. You're not only dependent on the food, the food is also dependent on you. And the food will give you something not only physical, The food will be able to nurture you spiritually and emotionally and psychologically. Adam uvehema toishiyah Hashem. There's a beautiful medrash rabbi in Parshas Vayikra. The medrash says, you know, which animals were used for sacrifices? Not many. Very few. A sheep, a goat, and basically an ox. And two types of birds. That's it. Even kosher animals you couldn't use for karbonus. Mamish a few, the beginning of Parshas Vayikra. We have a bucker. We have, a mat, we have a, a, an ox, a bull, and you have a sheep, and you have a goat, you have a ram, which is the fam- family of sheep. Those are the animals used, besides a few types of birds, a tarab and yoyna. And the Medrash says, why? The Medrash says that God said, I'm going to choose, There are animals that pursue, and there are animals that are pursued. You know, when the lioness or other uh, devouring animals go on a hunt, so they are they right from they pursue. 
So he says, we're going to take the Nirdofim, we're going to take those animals that are pursued, they are the ones who are going to become the Karbonas. They are the ones who become divine. And this is the Behemah, Behemah's Dachas, the king of Kaitza said, in their schus, in their schus, the world survives. And what this represents emotionally and psychologically is that you look at the animal soul within you. So yes, it needs to be educated, it needs to be disciplined, sometimes it has to be challenged, sometimes you have to tell it no, no, no. But at its core, it's really very holy, and it's waiting for sublimation, it's waiting for redemption. And it's in its merit that even the Adam gets elevated, and even the Adam gets saved. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.